Welcome to Dig Deep, the mining podcast. In this podcast, we go deep into mining news, hot topics, and live interviews with mining professionals and leading figures in the mining industry. Introducing your host, Rob Tyson, founder and director of Mining International and Mining International Executive, a leading global mining recruitment and headhunting agency. Hi, mining community. Welcome back to another episode of the Dig Deep, the mining podcast. And today we have two guests, Rob Craven and Keith Watson, co-managers of CQS, Natural Resources, Growth and Income, and Geiger Counter Fund, both funds which provide shareholders with exposure to a broad portfolio of mining and resource-focused equities, aiming to deliver both steady dividend income and capital growth. CNR has a, has a focus on critical commodities, including base, precious, battery metals, as well as energy and shipping, uh, across a diverse range of geographics, geo, uh, uh, thereby generating strong returns. Uh, GCL has a more targeted approach uh, and position investing in exploration and development and production of energy, and in particular uranium. Uh, last year, CNR Fund One Investment Week's Trust uh, Investment Company of the Year, uh, hipping Black uh, Rock World Mining to the post. Um, so both uh, Rob and Keith are going to be talking about the funds and discussing in particular, obviously, particular commodities and what's happening in the current uh, financial markets within the mining industry and also the outlook for 2024. So that's welcome both Rob and Keith to the podcast. How are you doing, guys? Very well. Thank you very much for having us on today. Yeah, thank you. No, appreciate your time as well. So as we always start these podcasts off, I just wondered if you can both um, just give us a brief introduction of yourselves. Um, and obviously, we can then talk about uh, the funds as well. Um, yeah, so I'll, I'll start on that. Um, yeah, so, so Keith and I run three investment trusts that are focused on um, on this sort of energy and mining, uh, energy and mining sector. So the key thing here is investment trusts are different from open-ended funds in that they're, they're closed-ended. So that gives us a bit more flexibility around um, ar- around liquidity on underlying names you know, versus, say, uh, the larger ETFs, which are kind of heavily, um, heavily liquidity-focused, which um, you know, gives us the luxury of kind of being able to be a bit more value focused um, and as a result generally more focused around that kind of small and mid cap type range so that kind of 100 million to kind of 1 billion type type market caps is kind of where we really see um, see, see a lot of our sort of bread and butter opportunities I guess um, yeah I mean as a quick background so I'm a I'm a geologist by education I've been in uh, in Sort of financial markets on the on the buy side, focusing on resources uh, since well, just just short of twenty years now. It's twenty years this year, so uh, I've been do, doing a little while, um, and I'll let, let Keith introduce himself. Yep, and um, I started in the industry in '92 uh, for one of the Scottish fund managers doing the resources sector up there, and I've been involved um, pretty much ever since. Um, my background fits quite well with Rob's geology uh, background in that I did more engineering related stuff and that works quite well as we look at the different types of projects on offer across a broad spectrum of commodities around the world um so just want to really just obviously start uh with a bit of an intro with the the three funds uh, you jointly manage under the cqs umbrella um yeah so look i mean if i 
kind of scratched the surface on it slightly. So, I mean, you kind of touched on it earlier. So, um, CQS Natural Resources um, is a bit more of a, a general general trust. So, it has a bit more flexibility around the mandate, um, and it can can it can be in energy or mining, and and mining there, um, you know, includes includes your base metals. It, it it includes precious metals, but it also includes things like uranium, which we have uh, quite a large weighting. And actually, the largest weighting of that fund currently is is next gen, which is um, a, a prospective uranium miner, which I'm sure we'll come around and, and touch on that, given how hot that sector has been. Um, but yeah, so it gives a lot of flexibility and, um, you know, it allows us to to kind of switch the portfolio around, depending what we see in market dynamics. So, um, you know, going back to sort of 2015, we had a very low weight in energy, given the sort of shale revolution and, and kind of concerns there around what that meant for margins and on corporates. Flip to um, flip to today, we've actually have a very large energy weighting um, relative to where we've been historically so over you know about 33 percent of the portfolio or so um yeah so i mean that that's down to the underlying dynamics that we see in the sector um you know there are there are kind of risks at the moment if we look to a fairly uncertain the geopolitical world which um you know, we'll kind of probably touch on i guess at a later point but we have some concerns there around um uh, around base metals so we're actually running a low base metal weight relative um but as, as i flagged um you know the uranium sector is one we we certainly find interesting, and that obviously ties into um our, to the Geiger Counter Fund, which is well, entirely focused on uranium miners. So very much the front end of the of the of the nuclear fuel cycle, um, which has obviously garnered a lot of attention more recently, and we've seen some very strong performance in that um in that trust and and expect to see well we do see very strong fundamentals going forward as well so um you know we reflect that in tqs natural resources as well but um you know that fund is a standalone focused on that on that sector um and then we have the golden prospect fund as well which kind of does what it says on the tin that's focused on precious metal miners uh, across across gold across silver there's a little bit of pgms in there as well but um you know across all three uh, across all three trusts, this is fairly diverse on a um, geographical basis. So, in in no way are we kind of UK focused. In fact, we have very very little UK listed focus um, across those. And certainly geographically, even those that are um, are in UK generally are, are kind of more globally um, globally focused. So, um, predominantly listings would be in Canada or Australia, uh, just given the nature of, of where a lot of commodity companies are listed. Um, and assets, you know, across you know, across North America, South America, Africa, Australia. Um, you know, we're cautious on on certain certain regions. You know, the stands generally get a bit of a wide berth, but you know, there, there are exceptions to that. You know, Kazakhstan has been okay to operate in, for example. But I feel like I'm probably going a bit too deep on that detail, so I'll leave that there for now. I think if we look at the, at the trust, CNR is the largest one. It's got the the breadth, so it can invest in energy, mining whether that be precious metals or or even things such as uranium or coal. Um, but uh, And then we've got the, the uranium fund, which is much more certainly topically currently involved in the energy transition and has seen the sea change in, in favourable policy by governments um, and is something that will probably be less exposed to short-term demand fluctuations than perhaps other um, commodities, and then we've got the precious metal fund, which plays more into um, policy decisions and, and geopolitics as a safe haven. But essentially, I would say that we've got themes which overlap across the board, and the biggest one 
is without doubt the underinvestment that has taken place over the last number of probably over a decade. Um, that has been exacerbated by, I think, ill thought out policy decisions by governments, at least in the, the learning stages of formulating policy and the energy transition and ESG constraints have really exacerbated the underinvestment of corporates. And frankly, we still think that that is something that continues today um, because corporates still don't feel they have a full remit to spend hard-won profits to extend resource life and grow output. And that is still probably trumping short-term demand weakness that we see as a potential risk because commodity prices and the performance of related equities are always effectively determined by the gap between supply and demand. And the balance of the portfolio, if we look at CNR, is still very much directed to those commodities which are better able to manage supply in the short term to offset any potential short-term demand weakness that we might be seeing in areas such as Asia led by China. There are other factors in the background, though, that we think are very important. And inflation is one of those, in part because of the shortage of supply, but equally also because of latent factors such as um, wage inflation, the, the, the energy crisis, which continues to linger on, being another, another contributor to that. But I think that hopefully gives you a feel for the usefulness of investors to own real assets in an, a still probably inflationary backdrop um, with underinvestment. It's very much a case that real assets, we think, will across all of the funds will, will hold out and it's a good place to invest unencumbered. Um, you both hold traditional and trans, uh, transitional energies uh, in your natural port for, uh, resources portfolio. Um, how does your view on the energy transition uh, inform the holdings? Um, I'd say I would just make a, for clarity there, we do hold traditional forms of energy and I, that does vary through the, the length of time that you might consider researching over the fund. I'd say in the post-COVID world and certainly post Russia's invasion of Ukraine, we've probably had the largest exposure to traditional sources of energy that Rob and I have ever seen in this fund, even before we became joint managers. And in part, there were very good reasons for that. First of all is that they were hated. Um, they were probably at the very, very pariah end of the um, policy for environmental social and governance constraints that many governments have put in place. Everyone wanted to get out of them. No one wanted to lend into projects, and they still don't in terms of getting banking finance. And we had things like COP26. And in the build-up to that, when Rob and I were looking at the energy sector and just looking at that specific silo for the time being, most utilities were at the historically low levels of inventory. And then suddenly we realized there was a post-COVID boom. Everything was growing and um, there wasn't enough of this stuff around. To cap all of that, 
not only had we seen going into the Russia-Ukraine crisis baseload power prices moving up in one and two and three year forward, but then clearly Russia went in and, and um, policies were put in place to prevent Europe particularly importing product from there. And as a result, we felt that having been hated and valuations in whether it be gas, coal or even oil, at historically low levels, so were inventories. Commodity prices were going in one direction, um, even before Russia, Ukraine, and that was likely to be reflected in very good dividend payouts. So at that point in time, we went as heavily as we have ever been in traditional sources of energy. We felt that that was a risk that that would actually impinge on growth. And whilst we think that the undersupply of metals such as copper, which is technology independent, it delivers electrons, however you get them, even that perhaps would be impacted by the potential slowdown that might result from it. And we had to find funds from somewhere and we allocated away from that sector and into the traditional sources. And it paid off in, uh, very well. You know, these things are still at relatively and absolutely attractive valuations in the traditional forms of energy. I'd say that for the time being, um, we still feel that there is a risk that in a fairly tepid demand growth scenario um, with good supply controlled by the likes of OPEC in the oil sector, um, that actually there's even more ability to respond and manage supply um, in there than there is in, say, copper mining, where, yes, there have been some disruption, some high-profile mine closures, uh, but nevertheless, the valuations of the miners themselves are streets ahead of those in the traditional forms of, of energy. Most energy companies pay out a large portion of cash, and that's reflected in, in revenue and therefore dividends that shareholders in the, in the broader fund receive. And that, but we do also invest alongside that in what we would call energy transition. And as Rob outlined earlier, one of the biggest fund hold, the biggest fund holding now actually happens to be a tier one uranium development story in, a, in an established uranium mining district in Canada, a safe jurisdiction. And I think hopefully that gives you a bit of a flavor for it. We also have gold. And I'd say that really that's in there as a form of insurance policy where the premium is at multi-year lows, we can, we can go on to valuations there perhaps a little bit later on, but that just tries to give you a broad flavour for the, the spectrum of exposure across the fund, I hope. Yeah, I mean, I, I might add a couple of comments as well. Uh, yeah, energy transition is, you know, is a key thematic in the space, and very much we um, we have applied it applied it through how we look at names. But I think it's clear to understand. Well, it's important to understand here that there's a difference between kind of growth, headline growth of a sector, and the implied valuation within those names. So, for example, lithium. A lot of lithium names got. Um, optically very, very expensive. You know, we had a big run up in the lithium price, you know, but yet we had concerns there about um, there's no shortage of new projects and there'd likely be a surge in, in, in supply. So it's going to be kind of a, a boom bust industry as you go through you know, tight markets and potentially a bit of overbuild or, or certainly kind of destocking as we're seeing currently from, from China on weak autos. And then you'll probably have a big ramp up in pricing again. So you know, there's two aspects to it. There's the the top down picking the un, the underlying commodity and the direction of that and the sector, but then there's the bottom up in looking at the valuations implied within that. So Keith kind of touched on it. We quite like energy names because they are 
essentially just cheap on a on a multiple basis so attractive valuations um and structurally um structurally limited incremental supply coming on whilst demand should continue to grow with gdp if we look to other areas like copper so we do like copper on a sort of multi-year view we're just kind of cautious in the near term uh because we touched on it earlier so weak chinese property market but um at the same time um, yeah, I mean, also copper is is the key um, is one of the key metals mechanisms for for facilitating the energy transition. But the issue there was actually the underlying companies themselves are um, were were quite expensive on a kind of multiple free cash flow basis. So they're already implying a very strong copper market, and we were kind of cautious in the near term. So it kind of explains the nuances. It's not as simple as just saying I like a certain quantity and it's heading in the right direction. There's also the valuation and and timing within that. Um, you know, nuclear is ultimately the 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 one that the one key answer, I think, or, or certainly an essential part of any kind of energy transition or or emissions targets. And increasingly, that's kind of getting more of a focus. Um, obviously, I know you're both uh, optimistic on you uh, on uranium, um, and obviously the price has uh, made obviously big jump to a 16 year high uh, recently. Um, what are the catalysts for for this, um, and where do you see this uh, moving going forward? Maybe for the remainder of this year. Yeah, um, yeah. So uh, I'm sure Keith will be jumping at the bit to talk about this as well. But um, yeah, look, it's um, yeah, it's been it's been the strongest commodity over over 2023. Um, it's been had a very strong run over over the last few years. Um, and yes, we're getting to a higher price. I mean, I think the important thing to understand here is that. Uranium itself is a tiny proportion of the overall cost in nuclear power generation. So um, the key thing here is that even at these increased prices is that you don't get any demand destruction. So the key drivers here, just put simply, it's obviously a bit more of a complicated topic than that we can kind of cover in, in, in two or three minutes. But um, yeah, there's a number of factors. So firstly, the emissions focus. So we're seeing Western government supporting life extension of their existing reactor fleet. Um, so that's leading to the increase in um, in demand near term. But at the same time, we've been led by a broader supply disruption, so or, or certainly concerns. So uh, you've had the Russia, Russian invasion of Ukraine. Russia is a made well, it's only about six percent of global uranium supply um, production, but it's about forty percent of global enrichment. So key parts of that. Um, Kazakhstan, which is on Russia's border, is about 40% of global uh, mine supply, um, and they export through Russia. So it's kind of created a degree of concern there from Western utilities who are now looking to contract out for their new extended lives. Um, and they're now sort of having additional well, incremental concerns about their um, the, the, the supply security. At the same time, you had a coup in Niger, so uh, that impacted a significant amount of um, of European supply of uranium to to Irano, um, and you've had a continued build out of reactors in China. From an energy security perspective, they they've accelerated from building eight reactors a year to ten reactors a year, um, and likely continue to go further. So um, they're they're locking in material to secure supply. Um, and you've got SMRs now being pushed quite aggressively by, um, you know, UK, US, as well as um, as well as China and Russia, who are actually leading in in development of that. Um, but SMRs are small modular reactors, so that's very much viewed as one of the kind of key um, key solutions here towards meeting emissions targets. 
because they can be built far far more quickly than you know, large nuclear plants you see like Hinkley and should therefore also carry less cost overrun risk. So so the key key thing is if if uranium were to increase to 200 300 there's there's no kind of demand destruction as such from um from from the users and at the same time we've had that kind of supply risk as demand is increasing so um yeah price has to be elevated um to motivate new new supply to come on um there are some projects feeding starting to feed through next gen would be one of the key ones to that um and we we believe it's perfectly well perfectly placed given it hasn't contracted at lower um lower prices as some of the you know, incumbent producers have done, uh, which gives them far less um, linkage into, into spot price moves of the underlying commodity. And I think this is a classic industry where the supply gap becomes very obvious. Come the end of this decade, um, the new reactors will start to come on stream. So a lot of the price move that we've seen at the moment has largely been driven by reactor life extensions by established markets both in the US and Europe and even in regions such as Japan which are more slowly than we'd hoped but nevertheless moving forwards with um, the reactivation and restart program of their um, nuclear fleet but beyond the end of this decade it's very much going to be driven by the the rollout of new reactors in in regions in the west but also um, continued rollout in the, on an aggressive footing by the likes of, of the Chinese. If we look at the Western established markets at COP28, we've just seen most, well, some 25 nations um, sign an agreement to triple nuclear generating capacity by 2050. And even if we were to take a conservative view and strip out some of the reactor life that will be decommissioned over that period of time, it's a more than doubling of established market generating capacity. And most of the supply is assuming all of the brownfield projects and allowable expansions around those from the, the largest producers in Kazakhstan and in the West being Cameco come back on stream. Not only that, they implicitly assume that the next largest projects, and in particular next gens, comes on stream by the end of this decade. And that has a very strategic value as a result. And, and nuclear power is very strategic. It still supplies something like 20% of our consumption of energy in the West, whether that's the UK, US, and um, even Europe, once you even things out with, in the case of France, it representing some 60, 65% at the moment, and probably at some point soon about 75% of their power. Um, if we continue on uh, uranium, um, obviously you mentioned the uh, next gen. I just wonder if there's any projects or companies um, that you may, may be focusing or keeping an eye on. In addition to next gen, I'd say that one of the other factors of, of and sticking with this very specific sector, one of the other factors is that Supply is very concentrated, and it's quite telling that the likes of the U.S. produces no domestic uranium, certainly nothing of any significance. And for that reason, and in, in the Geiger counter fund, something which is mirrored, um, though not quite so visibly in the top 10 um, in, the, in the broader fund, is the exposure to the U.S. assets that have had 
historic production, but generally require slightly higher uranium prices in order to generate the profits. But they're very much in the sweet spot now of, of someone that will benefit not only from the current higher prices, but likely as not from the build-up of a strategic stockpile for which funding has been procured by the US government. And so that, you know, there are other projects which will be restarts. We have nice comfort in their historic cost of production that will be that are next on the list in terms of sizing in the Geiger counter fund and in the CNR fund. Yeah, I mean, I'll just add to that. I mean, our, our key focus really has been on um, projects that aren't contracted. So they haven't locked up their future future supply in contracts and therefore have full price participation into, into this stronger market. Um, other key factors are obviously the geology, so grade and ultimate cost of production, and then obviously uh, regional security. So um, as a result, that's, yeah, as Keith sort of mentioned, it's left us heavily focused on North America. Um, with within Athabasca Basin in Canada um, and some US projects and sort of UR Energy would be kind of a key one there that doesn't really seem to have got the attention it perhaps should have should have um, and yeah we we think is very well placed for that future contracting cycle and also to ramp up um, production from their own projects so um, yeah they're already in production they have a clear route to to ramp up production further um, you know it's one that we, we we think is well placed to to benefit from from this stage of the cycle. Um, back to obviously natural resources, um, you also obviously hold some uh, shipping stocks. Um, we have obviously seen uh, the impact on the uh, Red Sea trade routes uh, following the uh, obviously uh, recent drone strikes. How do you see um, ongoing geopolitics impacting trade and uh, supply chains? Yeah, look, I mean, it's... Um... A hugely complicated topic. I mean, it's something, but it's clearly something we're we're very focused on. So you can't you can't really invest in um, in in commodities or commodity equities without having a pretty strong view on it. Um, so yes, clearly, you know the the Suez Canal and Red Sea seeing major disruptions from Houthi attacks on on ships. Initially, that was focused on uh, on container ships and cargo ships, but increasingly we've seen that that being directed towards tankers and and others. Um, yeah, and we're yeah having material impact on um, on on trade. So a lot of ships now being sent around the um, Cape of Good Hope, um, around South Africa, uh, and into Europe. And we're seeing you know the Qataris redirecting LNG ships. We're seeing Shell. We're seeing Maersk. Um, you know we're seeing yeah a, a lot of the big shippers. And actually, just last week we see we're seeing a number of the insurers stopping stopping insurance through that route as well. So that really forced the hands of those of those traders. But yeah, ge geopolitics has a massive a massive impact. And and actually, if you look to all of these issues that have been going on recently, Iran is generally central to it. So you know even the Israeli um, Gaza war, um, you know Hamas were were backed by Iran. So Hamas are Sunni, um, the Iranians are, are Shia. So didn't always seem like an obvious match, but kind of took a common common enemy in the Israelis ultimately. So they were kind of instrumental in, in backing Hamas. I don't think they were kind of leading in, in, that, um, in that attack that we saw, but Iran are kind of central to it. So the Houthis in Yemen, so they are Iranian backed. Um, they have been supplying them with weapons and drones, so they've been firing at missiles in the Red Sea. We've seen a number of other actions just in the last week or so. So Iran firing missiles into Kurdistan, uh, Bill, so into Iraq. We've seen them firing missiles into Syria. 
Um, we've seen them firing missiles into Pakistan, who also returned some missiles. So, um, yeah, there's really heightened tension in the region. And Iran is quite important and central to this because um, they're on the straits of um yeah, on the Straits of Hormuz, which is very central towards oil flows. So about 17 to 20 million barrels a day of oil travel through that. And Iran could ultimately shut that down should they want to. So that could create huge volatility in oil. And if they were to take that out of the market, a you know, $300 oil would not be um, implausible. You know, it's that kind of extreme situation. So yeah, commodities is is always about logistics and is always a key point. And, and that kind of volatility that we're seeing there um, give, driven by geopolitics is something that you know, we try and look to reflect in the portfolio and um, you know owning um, you know the, the likes of frontline so is the largest of our crew chippers is well placed because ultimately if ships travel longer distances to to deliver oil um, that tightens up the shipping market overall and therefore they receive higher day rates as a result that's kind of higher earnings to the the underlying corporate and um, shipping companies in general pay pay a lot of that out in dividends so you do see a kind of direct return on that um next largest shipper would be we're, we're kind of focused on uh, the lpg side of things so propane so bw lpg is the largest lpg shipper um globally so they're kind of well placed to to it it's kind of a pro a kind of proxy play or um yeah, iterative play on on shale activity. So propane producers a byproduct out of increased shale production out of the US, as well as increased um, LNG production that we're seeing globally. So that's leading to more gas production as a result, more propane. Uh, so BWLPG is well placed to <clears throat> to benefit from that increase in propane production, which is ultimately heading from either the West or Middle East, where you're seeing a big ramp up in production there. Uh, predominantly going to Asia, where it kind of feeds into the sort of petrochem refining, refining world. So, yeah, it's kind of a a play on on the kind of regional uh, regional production differences and and differences in 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 regional pricing, which they get to to kind of benefit from at least a sort of tighter usage, higher day rates, and and stronger returns to the underlying equity. Um, there's obviously been talk uh, about projected uh, rate cuts uh, later this year. Um, can you talk about some of the anticipated impact uh, that will have on the uh, gold price? Um, yeah, look, it's gold. Gold is always kind of difficult, difficult to call with full conviction because it's heavily sentiment-led commodity. Um, but yes, I mean, look, it's it's clear now that inflation has eased materially. Um, you know, one thing, and everyone will have their own own views on this, and. Um, you know, I, I mean, I think we're all kind of sat at home and not feeling like that deflation has materially fed through to our our, our living bank balances and, and working day costs. But um, yeah, the, the reality is inflation has eased materially and we're seeing kind of pockets of deflation now feeding through. The question now is going to be whether that that inf that deflation kind of continues to feed through and allow central banks to then kind of cut rates materially. Our view our current view, and this is obviously dynamic and constantly shifting, is that perhaps the expectation of rate cuts got slightly ahead of itself. Um, we think central banks are going to be quite cautious there about cutting too aggressively because um, because they're they're left in a they don't want to see a kind of repetition of the 70s where they cut too quick quickly and then they see inflation coming back. So our view is they'll take a bit more of a staged approach to that. The market is clearly pricing in more of a kind of soft landing economic kind of backdrop. And um, I don't know where we're at today, but was pricing in six rate cuts at one point uh, in the US, which 
we, we thought was probably slightly ahead of itself. Um, that's clearly easing, but yeah, what are the implications for gold and what does that mean? So um, our view, so we kind of look at it more from a flow perspective. We think it is certainly supportive and uh, a rate cut environment would lead to more buying of gold and increasing rates was certainly one thing that held it back. But if we actually look to where pricing is today, uh, we're just trading just off record highs. And, you know, it was only at the back end of, of last year that we actually saw gold hold above 2000 for the end of any given month. We'd had intramonth spikes where we got to higher levels. Um, but now we're in a, in a place where gold actually seems to be holding that $2,000 level um, a bit more stably. And this has been entirely driven by, almost entirely driven by um, strong central bank demand, which we continue to see feeding through. Just just today, we're seeing strong additions again from, from Turkey um, in, in their additions there. So central banks have have been the primary primary driver of that demand and have kept it at those high levels. Yet at the same time, we've seen um, the financial markets being steady sellers. So physical ETFs have continued to see selling. Um, our view is there is more reason in a, an easing rate environment, or they're a bit more cautious of the rate of cuts, that the financial market, the financial players might start to come back in. Um, and that is something that could, or is probably required, or certainly would be supportive in kind of breaking that all-time high resistance level, which seems to put a bit of a, a lid on gold over the last you know, four or five months. So we're, we're constructive on the space. We reflect that in the portfolio where we've, uh, within CQS Natural Resources, where we've increased the relative weighting. Um, we expect central bank demand to remain strong given the geopolitical uncertainty, China dumping US treasuries. Um, where else is it going to park it? Gold is obviously going to be one of the beneficiaries of that. We're seeing continued additions by Turkey, uh, Russia, et cetera. And we expect that to continue. So the real question is about when the financial market and ETFs become turned back to buyers because they have a real, a real outsized kind of delta impact on, um, on the ultimate flows there and therefore a big big impact over over pricing but from an equity perspective you know this is kind of two pronged whilst we are constructive on the gold price um it's hard to call necessarily whether it is going to break that all-time high one thing we can say with a hundred percent conviction is that the the, the equities are at some of the cheapest multiples they've ever been on historic historic numbers um and this is a very good gold price for them so um the bottom up side of it we are uh, we're very comfortable with, and that's one of the primary reasons we've increased that, that underlying weighting. Um, obviously, talking about mining companies, uh, particularly uh, given the recent closure at First Quantum's Panama uh, operation um, in South America, um, can we discuss the licensing landscape um, and its results impact uh, on commodity price in the sort of short, medium and long term? I'll, I'll pick up a little bit there. I'd say that generally, in a in a cash-strapped world, governments are looking to raise funds wherever they can, and those that have resources are no different in that regard. And one of the mechanisms that they do that is by trying to up the fiscal income that they can obtain from projects. I'd say that there are perhaps very specific issues. We'll come back perhaps to Cobre Panama, but I think one contributor that comes back to our actual like of copper in the, the medium term is the fact that some of the biggest regional producers, the likes of Chile, have actually starved their operations for precisely the reason that they contribute to the public coffers, the state-owned Cadelco, 
um, as a result of which they really do need more investment in order to hold production flat. It's already started to trip over a little bit because they've not invested fast enough or anything near enough really just to maintain production, let alone grow it. Um, but that takes time. I think that there are instances such as Cobre Panama, which can be um, much more brutal in the short term. And I would like to add to everyone that it wasn't too long ago that First Quantum was our largest holding, but we felt that the copper price had moved enough um, post COVID. The valuations had reached a level that we were more than comfortable with and perhaps a bit stretched. And as a result of which we've, we've exited. And um, since then, we've had a quite fractious um, run up to the election. And we've got one of the incumbents having only just months ago agreed to some revised legal structure for the Panama mine um, and reneged on it because it's not socially acceptable. And we'll see where that goes at the moment. Unfortunately, it, it's meant that um, with certain legal requirements, the company has had to go down a fairly um, confrontational approach that within a certain time frame, they have to file in the international courts for arbitration, which isn't ever taken particularly well. Um, and it's meant that that mine has gone into care and maintenance um, and they've fired all of the, the staff and the, um, the downstream workforce will no doubt be suffering as a result of that. But that's sometimes the way things go. Um, and that's contributing to some of the supply reduction and curtailment that we're seeing globally alongside the bigger um, trends from this, such as Chile. Um, are there any other potential examples of that? Well, possibly. I mean, the Democratic Republic of Congo is another region which is notorious for changing fiscal regimes or trying to expropriate a share of a project um, as a more direct means of getting um, income. But we don't really invest in the DRC to the same extent. I think the Cobre Panama was a bit of a shock, even to us, having sold so much of it. Um, but, you know, these things do go in cycles. It may just be that this is something in the background that forces First Quantum to restructure somehow and, and keep its foot on that asset in some regard. And it may well come back. But for the time being, it's catching a falling knife and we're not really encouraged, at, even at the prices that we're seeing. And despite some rumours of a potential bid for that asset or maybe some of its other African assets, we're not yet attracted back into that one as a as a prime uh, a prime investment, um, and you do have to be quite careful. It does open the the question that we referred to earlier as to where geographically do we invest, and it's you know we will take some jurisdictional risk um, if the valuation is is comfortable enough. We feel that the closed end structure of of this fund lends itself to less liquid assets that these might be. Um, but, you know, we're fairly cautious in the extent to which we do so. You know, we don't take bets which would, you know, require some disclosure if something happened. And, you know, it, it would have been close if, um, if we'd still been invested in, in First Quantum when the um, unfortunate decision by the government to um, renege on its prior um, replacement for law nine um, took place. Um, I, I don't, it's very subjective. There's nothing 
that you can objectively point to that says we're always going to be right on this. But, you know, it is a fact that I think contributes to the, the broader theme that we've mentioned earlier in this podcast, which is supply is something which is probably more important in driving the investment case than perhaps some short-term demand softness. But, you know, we still think that energy is one where there's there's more ability to... Um, we, then, we then slip to the relative arguments and the relative valuations for supply management and investment in better valued uh, vehicles in, in that side of the, the commodity spectrum. I'd maybe just add a little. I mean, what, one thing it certainly does is um, management teams of large miners have generally been pretty gun shy of committing to any large capex projects. And since back end of 2015, when we can we really hit kind of a weak point in the cycle and a changeover, a lot of the major man management teams and they're going to put more accountant type CEOs in than um, growth, growth at any cost uh, type management teams. And we had that big shift and they've generally been very cautious around big capex projects and things like what we've just seen with Cobre Panama just makes that just further discourages any further investment. Now, you know, that, that sounds like a negative for the space, but actually it's hugely bullish towards that kind of medium term outlook. Um, so it basically means you're going to have more constrained supply uh, because people aren't committing to multi-year, multi-billion capex type projects because they don't have that certainty. You know, we've seen geopolitical uncertainty across South America just just in the last 12, 18 months. Um, you know, if Chile and Peru aren't offering the same kind of growth growth leveling opportunities, although you know there's some aspects of that have stabilised. I mean, we look now we've got um, got major issues in in kind of Ecuador with um, yeah it, it, yeah we kind of lockdowns as as protests are going on etc. And it, it's just it's not easy to add new supply and companies are very cautious about spending a lot of money in doing so. And at the same time, you've got this kind of onshoring of supply chain. So you know, you've got the whole IRA um, process in the in the US as well as Europe, where it's kind of suggesting that whilst it's getting more difficult to build new mines abroad, actually the permitting timelines in the US or Canada or you know in the sort of more typical West might um, yeah might be easing. There certainly might be more political support to do so. So that's something we're kind of monitoring quite closely. Um, and yeah, we're going to kind of see how that feeds through. But ultimately, I think it's kind of pretty. It, I think it's pretty constructive because if you're not having that incremental supply coming through, even at you know a, what are still you know, pretty healthy prices across commodities in general, um, that that is ultimately constructive, leaving the the demand question as the major one. Um, lastly, and uh, concluding, um, if we want to sort of I suppose sum up and looking forward uh, to 2024. What trends do you see, are you sort of anticipating? Um, and how do you see some of the, obviously, commodities that you're, you're focusing on? Where do you see them going? Um, yeah, look, get, get the crystal ball out. I mean, um, we we are a little, I mean, we're a bit cautious on China, as we touched on. We think there's some potential issues there, just given the house price or the house crisis, housing crisis they're having. So, um, you know, they've gone into declining population now. So they've reached peak um, peak population. And at the same time, they've got this kind of huge glut of excess property and the government have just stepped in to back up a load of the developers and build out, um, like, like complete those unfinished properties. So you're going to have a surge of new supply coming through. So we think there's a bit of a correction there. That's why we're kind of staying under underweight on the base metal side near term. 
we think energy remains re remains constrained, so it remains supportive there. But ultimately, you know, the underlying values of the the names is probably the primary driver there. And and gold, we we're we're certainly hopeful or, or optimistic of a kind of breakout of that kind kind of key resistance level of above two thousand, and and think those names could outperform if um if it kicks forward. But yeah, there's there's a degree of uncertainty. I think it's going to be necessary to be probably a bit more agile than than it has been in in prior times. It's not just a simple sit there. I think the market will move. Um, but yeah, ultimately we're we're kind of pretty optimistic on the, uh, or or very optimistic on the the medium term because no one's really adding new supply and demand will continue to grow. We're just trying to make sure that we kind of protect or um, protect any kind of volatile periods and and position to hopefully benefit the most in a in a stronger market as well. And, and sometimes if I could just add one final point, one thing we haven't really talked about is iron ore. And I'd say in, in other potential resource and certainly mining funds and indices, a big portion of exposure is via the large Rios and BHPs that are predominantly iron ore um, miners. And I'd say that this is one that we don't own. There's very little cost curve support in that cartel. Um, and the the decline in property starts and therefore uh, and completions that we're seeing at the moment really does leave that commodity and I think those investments more exposed. So, you know, sometimes what's not said by the investment managers that's quite relevant. And I'd say that the one thing to note is that, you know, we haven't talked about that and we don't really invest in it. And, and frankly, investors can get exposure to that probably more cheaply themselves. For the closed-end fund, you know, we think it's better place to go for um, better value projects, use the, the lack of liquidity that deters people that offers better valuations as an investment opportunity than it is just to index. And, um, yeah, we've obviously got to mention uranium again. So kind of going into 2024, we think that will continue to tick, should continue to tick higher. We think the names have kind of lagged at the back end of the underlying miners and the equities have lagged at the back end of 2023 as you know, with a bit of profit taking, given the strong returns that they've delivered, um, you know, so it, we think there's definitely room for a, a bit of catch up there. Um, you know, we're still seeing a very tight underlying spot market and utilities out there trying to contract. So there's a lot of reasons to be very constructive through 2024 in that space. Robin, Keith, really appreciate your time in. Uh, Thank you. Give us a update on the obviously the three funds and obviously give us an insight to various commodities um, and your sort of. Um, outlook for for 2024. If our audience wants to reach out to you, if they obviously want to follow your story, um, how can they go about doing that? What sort of social media platforms do you sort of uh, go on and obviously uh, your website as well? Um, yeah, we, we have our website. We have monthly fact sheets that we put out there. We have annual reports given to Investment Trust. So it's a company in its structure. So you can kind of see our commentary there as well. But obviously that ends up being a bit sort of a bit more backward looking by the time he's kind of gone through that whole process. So fact sheets probably the best way for month to month updates. And then we do 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 a number of these these kind of things. So we're, we're trying to get a bit more active on that side as well. So hopefully that would um, allow people to kind of stay updated, but obviously very happy for people to reach out as well. And if you go onto the, the NCIM as a search on on your web browser, you'll you'll come into the um, the relevant portal, and there there is an email address uh, contact ncim at cqm 
smformike.com and that's another route that investors or prospective investors will be able to reach us. Yeah, and we can include these in our show notes accompanying this uh, episode. So uh, for easy access for any of our listeners to obviously reach out to you and obviously to uh, follow your story and the, the funds as well. So guys, really appreciate your time. Um, thank you and all the best for 2024. Thank, thank you for hosting. No worries. Um, hope you enjoyed that episode. Uh, really appreciate your continued support. As always, keep sharing these episodes far and wide. Obviously, with this particular episode, we don't need to just share it within our mining community, but people outside of our mining community um, to maybe maybe invest in, in funds, understand what mining is about, and obviously understand the wider range of commodities within our mining space. So thank you again. Really appreciate your help uh, and support. And until next time, happy mining. Thank you for listening. Remember to reach out to Rob via the show notes and be sure to subscribe and leave a review. Until next time, happy mining, helping each other to improve the mining industry.